Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. My name is Wes McKay, and I'm the senior pastor and one of the elders here at Crosspoint Baptist Church. And uh, I just want to, again, extend my welcome to you if you're a visitor here. Um, so thankful, thankful for Chance, thankful for Dustin leading us in those portions. And uh, I'm just excited that we get to pray for each other's neighbors. Because uh, as a reminder, and, you know, Crosspoint Baptist Church, we should be able to say this together now, but Crosspoint Baptist Church, what? exist to make disciples of all nations for the good of all people and for the glory of God. That is our mission here at Crosspoint Baptist Church. And that starts with our neighbors and that goes to all the nations like Uganda and Ecuador and places like that. And so I'm excited that we get to pray for uh, each other's neighbors and I pray that you would pray for me and my neighbors right now. Uh, you know, we'll pray over Jester Avenue in a couple weeks, but I, I can think of all the neighbors right now who don't know Christ. I can think of Zlatan. I can think of Rosie. I can think of Paula. I can think of uh, Jerrica, Jacoby, James, Braylon, Draylon, uh, TJ. All these names come to my mind. And so these are people who will spend eternity somewhere. And so let's, let's be really active and really engage in this time where we're praying over each other's neighbors. So, if you would turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 33, that's where we'll be at uh, our time together this morning. And once you find your place in Exodus 33, if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Exodus 33, beginning in verse 1, reading the whole chapter. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here. You and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard the disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used, used to speak to Moses face to face as a Man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. 
And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, and I in your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of, this, of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you, before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in, a, in the cleft of a rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Let's pray. God, that is our prayer this morning. Show us your glory, O God, in the face of your Son, Jesus Christ. That we would behold the beauty and the wonder and the mysteries of Jesus in your word. God, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies above proclaim your handiwork, O Lord. And we want to stand here in awe of it as we read the text of Scripture, God. As our minds are set on Christ, as our affections are raised for Him, God. We pray, God, let us behold even a glimpse of your glory in your word. Lord, I pray that it would be transformative for us this morning. That God, as we go out into our neighborhoods and into all the nations, we would be proclaiming the glory of God and the Son of God. God, let us stand in all of this this morning. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Maybe seated. Do you recall a friendship that maybe you've had that maybe you haven't seen each other for a while and you can pick back up right where you left off? It may have been t- days, months, years that, that you haven't seen them, but it's like normal. Those are great types of friendships, right? But then there's those kind of friendships where something happens and things aren't as normal, right? Things aren't as usual. There's certainly a, you feel a tension if, you know, because something has occurred between you. And you don't really know. You just kind of say, we just grew apart or we had a falling out or something. But there's clearly something has changed the nature of the relationship. Maybe we've experienced something like that. Well, that is what Israel has experienced now, coming out of Exodus 32, where they sinned against the golden calf. It's not all as usual. They didn't pick up where they left off in regards to their relationship with God. The nature of their relationship has certainly changed here in Exodus 33. And that's what we'll be looking at this morning. Uh, the main point of what we're going to try and dive into is this. Because of their sin, because of Israel's sin, God distances himself from Israel. But Moses experiences a level of intimacy than, than he has before. And those are kind of some of the big themes that we're going to look at in Exodus 33. We're going to look at this is that that God's dangerous presence among a sinful people. It's dangerous for God to be among his people because they are sinful. But there is intimacy that we can have with God like Moses did. And then we have to understand is that God's presence with us is necessity. It's necessary for us to survive. And then lastly, there is a wonder and awe in beholding God's glory. 
So that's what we're going to look at today in Exodus 33. So let's look at the first point on your outline right now, just in the first six verses that we have together. Let's look at this. The danger of God's presence among a stiff-necked people. That's God's own language about His people. They are stiff-necked, and we talked about that last week in Exodus 32. You may know this, but uh, convicted felons, uh, they can be reintegrated back into society, even though they've been convicted of a felony. But there are certain rights and privileges and benefits of citizenship that they lose when they come back in, maybe voting rights and things like that. Types of jobs they're able to get. But they're still a citizen, but they lose some of those benefits, right? Well, this is certainly the case with Israel is that they've committed a great felony against God, right, in worshiping the golden calf. And they're still God's people, but the benefits of that relationship are certainly have changed, right? They're not experiencing everything they used to experience with God. Just look at this in chapter 33, starting in verse 1, is that God goes ahead and says, go, complete your journey, continue going out, right? God instructs Moses to continue where they were going into the promised land. Because what he says is this, I'm going to keep the promise that I made. I made a promise back in Genesis 12 that I was going to give you a land, you were going to be my people, I was going to bless you and protect you and all these things. So God is keeping his promises to his people, even though they just sinned against him in Exodus 32. God's keeping his promises. Israel has broken their side of the agreement, but God is faithful and he's committed And his faithfulness is not dependent on our unfaithfulness, right? Or on our faithfulness, right? Just because Israel has not been committed to God, has not been faithful to God, does not mean that God is not going to be faithful to them, right? That's what 2 Timothy 1.13 says. If we are faithless, he remains what? Faithful. For he cannot deny himself. Isn't that such a great truth for the Christian? That as bad as you mess up, As bad as you fail, as terrible as you give in to sin over and over again, your faithlessness does not determine God's faithfulness to us if we repent and trust in Jesus Christ. Praise God that every day God doesn't say, Wes, what are you going to do today to mess up this relationship? And if you do, I'm done with you. No, God says, I will remain faithful regardless of how faithless Wes is today. Praise God. Shouldn't that make you happy today? God has not given up on you, even though you've given up on Him numerous amounts of times over and over again. God's not given up on you. And He's not given up on His people here. He says, continue on to the journey because I'm going to keep my promises. And not only is He going to keep His promise about bringing them into the land, but He's also keeping His promise about protecting them on the way there, right? He's going to give them this inheritance, but he's also going to send his angel before them and drive out the Canaanites, all all the ites, right? We don't have to say their names all over again. He's going to drive them all out. He's going to protect them along the way. So God is not revoking his promise or his protection of his people. He's not throwing them or casting them out to the wolves to say, good luck on your own, right? No, he says, I'm going to send my angel and I'm still going to drive out these people before you. He's not throwing his people to the wolves. And so God's keeping his promise. God is giving them protection. But there is a change in the relationship. Look at this. This is what he says in verse 3. You're going to go up to that land flowing with milk and honey. But who's not going? God. Look at what he says. I will not go up among you. I won't go up with you. 
That's the one thing in their relationship that has changed. All this time, God says, I will go with you. I will lead you. I will guide you. I will be with you as your God, and you will be my people. That's what he says to them. But in Exodus 32, the relationship changes, and their sin has created distance between them and God. That's what sin does. It creates distance between us and God. We might think that sin doesn't have that big of a ramification. It's not that big a deal. It doesn't really change the nature of my relationship with God. Let me tell you this, church. Sin never will draw you nearer to God. It will never develop and create more intimacy with God. It will only create more distance between you and God. Listen to what Isaiah 59, 1-2 says. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or His ear dull that it cannot hear. But listen to this. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. Here's the, here's the issue. God has not created this distance. We have created this distance with God. And this morning, I won't even pretend like some of you here feel like you're the closest you've ever been to God. Maybe you're here this morning and I, you might say, man, I, I feel so far away from God right now. I feel so distant. I feel like He's, I reach up my arms and I cannot get there. This morning, the question maybe we need to ask ourselves is, is there sin that we're unrepentant of in our own lives that we're not willing to give up. And maybe that very sin is the reason that you feel so distant from God. It's not because God has changed. Maybe you are unwilling to change. You have to ask yourself that question. Why is there distance between me and God right now? It's not because God has changed. Maybe it's because you're unwilling to change, i.e. repent. So sin creates distance between us and God as it did Israel. It created distance between them and God. And so he's not going to go up with them, right? Their sin is so great that he can't go up among them lest he what? He consume them. He'd destroy them, right? He would destroy them. His presence would utterly destroy them. He can't be in the presence of sin. Habakkuk 1.13 says this, Your eyes are too pure to look upon evil. And you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. That's, that's about God. And so... Even a single moment. Look at this in verse 5. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would destroy you. I would utterly obliviate you. You'd be done. So he can't go up among his people even for a minute because they are in sin and he is a holy God. This is quite different than what God has said early on before the golden calf. If you remember what he said in Exodus 23:23, where he is going to send his angel to destroy and consume their enemies, now it's them that's the problem. Israel. One author said it like this, whereas previously God had sent his angel to destroy Israel's enemies, now he would send his angel lest he himself would destroy Israel. You see the change there? So now Israel is the problem because of their sin. Because God is so holy. That's what we learned this morning in our What is the Gospel? What Dr. David taught us. God is so holy, He cannot be in the presence of sin. It's actually a danger for Him to be in the presence of sin. And if anybody a Chronicles of Narnia fan, anybody like Chronicles of Narnia, everybody knows that 
that line from Mr. Beaver when Lucy says uh, about Aslan, is he safe? Y'all remember what Mr. Beaver says? Who said anything about safe? What? Who said anything about that? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. You see how those two dynamics can be held together? God can be incredibly, perfectly good, but he can be so good that his goodness and holiness are a danger to people who are not good and not holy. And that's the problem with Israel. They are not good. They are not holy. And so being in their presence, in the presence of God, would utterly destroy them within a single moment. And when they hear about this, that God's not going to go up with them, What's their response? It's not excitement. It's turmoil. They are in mourning. They are sad, right? This is what it says in verse, in verse 4. They mourned over this, over the Lord's words. And, and what, what happens is they're told to strip off their ornaments, remove these things, which is really interesting. Just nerd out for me with one second. To strip off these ornaments and this jewelry and stuff like that. It's the same word that was used in Exodus chapter 12, verse 35 and 36, when Israel was told to go strip the jewelry off of the Egyptians, to take the jewelry from them and plunder them as they walked out of Egypt. And guess what now? Who's being plundered now because of their sin? Israel, how the tables have turned on them because of their sin. And so they remove these things in mourning. They are being stripped of their jewelry. But this act of removing their jewelry, as you see in verses 5 and 6, it could be a sign of their remorse, their repentance in some sense. Leaving behind what they once had, maybe even some of the things that they used to make their own gods, as they did in Exodus 32. Leaving behind those things, saying, gosh, what have we done now? And sometimes that's what, that's what repentance requires from each of us. To lay down the things that we once had. To say the things that we once used for our own gain and good and glory. We have to put these aside because we have sinned. And so Israel has some distance with God. They have distance with him right now. But the first six verses are kind of set in contrast to the second set of verses in 7 through 11, where Israel experiences distance with God, but Moses experiences some intimacy with God in verses 7 through 11. Just look at this. In verses 7 through 11, Moses has intimacy with God here in these verses with the tent of meeting. Have you ever felt like that person who is on the outside looking in? Everybody ever had that experience where you're like, you're like, man, why are they in that meeting? What do you think they're talking about in that meeting? You know, what, you think they're talking about me in that meeting? Like, man, I, I bet they're talking about good things about me in that meeting. Huh, right? You ever felt like that person? You just, I'm on the outside, I'm watching everybody else, right? That has to be Israel's experience right now. When Moses makes this tent of meeting to go meet with the Lord, Israel's got to be like, what are they doing out there? I want, I want to be a part of that. Like They're on, they're on the outside looking in. Why can't, I, why can't I be there? Well, there's a number of indicators here in just these verses 7 through 11 that Israel's relationship has changed. Right? Look at this. Is that Moses in verse 7 
is told to make a separate tent. Now, this is a separate tent from the tabernacle, right? We learned all about the tabernacle in 25 through 35, right? 36. And, um, but now this is a tent of meeting that is outside the camp. And so there's something different about this. He says there's a separate tent that's created different from the tabernacle. There's a tent. This tent was pitched outside the camp. It's a good distance away from the camp. And Moses is the one who went out to it while Israel stood at their own tent. Do you see how they're on the outside looking in? It's all about this tent that's outside the camp. It's a far distance away from the camp. Only Moses goes to that tent. They stay at their own tent and look at that tent. They are on the outside looking in, saying, man, look how far we've come, but how far off we still are. But in contrast... Moses has a great experience of nearness with God in these verses. Look, just look at this. Yahweh speaks with Moses at this tent, right? And Yahweh speaks with him face to face. Now, I'm not saying God has a face. We're going to hear a lot about these words here. God's face, God's back, God's neck, God's hand, and things like that. God doesn't have any of these features, but this is the way an author is trying to communicate these things. It says, is that they're talking like face-to-face with one another. And there's Deuteronomy will end in Deuteronomy 34, verse 10, saying, there has come no one like Moses after him that has had this relationship with God like face-to-face with him. So look at the intimacy of that relationship, Moses, face-to-face with God. And then it says that Yahweh speaks to him as a friend. Man, to be a friend of God, right? God said this before in Isaiah 41, verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, my friend. Man, Moses has a unique relationship with Yahweh, does he not? It shows that there is some intimacy there between him and God. And it's all a reminder of what Israel could have had with God. Right? Look at what they could have had with God. What Moses is experiencing with that intimacy with God, this is what Israel could have had. So they're on the outside looking in, saying, Man, look what I have lost. It's kind of like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, right? When they're exiled out of the Garden of Eden, a cherubim is put there with, you know, flaming swords. I'm sure that they had to look back on there and say, Man, look at what we're missing out over there in that garden. Now Israel's doing the same thing. Look what Moses has and what we could have had. But our sin has caused this problem. Maybe you're here this morning and wondering, is friendship with God even possible? Can I actually be a friend of God? Like Moses here? Let me say this. You can be a friend of God. You can have friendship with God on such an intimate level like Moses did. You can have friendship with God through Christ Jesus. Psalm 25, 14 says this, The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him, and He makes known to them His covenant. You want to be a friend of God? You have to obey Jesus' commands. Friends of God obey the commands of Jesus. John 15, 14, You are my friends if you do what I command. But here is how you're going to be a friend of God. 
not only is it through Christ Jesus, not only is it about obeying Christ's commands, but being a friend of God is going to cost you something. What's it going to cost you? Being a friend of this world. And now, let me hold up for a second. You're like, we can't have friends who are in this world. We can't have friends who are unbelievers. That's not what I'm saying, and that's not what I think the Bible says. It means about allegiance. Who are you pledging your allegiance to in this world? Are you pledging it to the world, or are you pledging it to Christ? Because you cannot be a friend of this world and a friend of God. James 4.4 is very clear about this. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This morning, you have to choose friendship right now. You have to choose who you're going to be a friend with. Are you going to consider yourself a friend of God through faith in Christ Jesus or continue to be a friend of this world? Because you're going to put yourself in one of two positions with God. A friend of God or a foe of God. And let me just warn you, you do not want to be a foe of God on the last day. You do not want to be His enemy. You can have friendship with God through faith in Christ Jesus. And He is a faithful friend. Moses' friendship with God is unique. He was a faithful servant. And you might think, man, Moses is great. He's awesome. Look how, look how incredible he is. He's a friend of God. He speaks with God face to face. He's, he, he, this intimate relationship with God. Man, Moses is on like Mount Rushmore of incredible people. And let me just say this. Moses is great. He's cool. He's incredible. He is to be admired, and he is commendable. But let me say this. If you think Moses is cool, then Jesus is going to blow your mind. This is what Hebrews 3, 1-6 says. Therefore, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. Just as Moses was also a faithful in all of God's house, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. You think Moses is great? Well, Moses is a servant in the house. Look to Jesus who is the son. He is worthy of more honor and glory. That's him. And Moses wants Israel to experience this relationship and intimacy with God on their journey to the promised land. And so God's presence is necessary for them. Just look at point number three on this. God's presence is necessary for God's people. This intimacy. I, I don't know, if it, anybody have an IT kind of background in here? You know, maybe, you, you know, computer stuff and things like that. Well, I, let me just ask this. I'm, I'm about to show how big a dummy I am. So, but go with me on this analogy. So, what would you need to build a website? Anybody know? Well, I, I think you at least need a computer, right? I don't, I, I mean, unless there's an IT person who can correct me, I think you need a computer to build a website. Don't know how all that works. I just, that, that's what I think. That's what I hear on the streets. So you need a computer to build a website. It's pretty necessary to the task, right? 
And without one, it's, um, I would say it would be futile to try and build a website without a computer, right? And you can't, there's no replacement for it either. It's like, well, you don't need a computer. You can do it with uh, a calculator. Like, it's, there's no replacement, right? If you give somebody a calculator, they can't build a website with a calculator. And so it's, un, it's necessary, a computer is for a website, to build a website, and there's also no replacement for a computer in order to build a website. And this is the point that, that Moses is trying to make here, is that Israel journey, journeying without God's presence with them is vain, is futile, is hopeless. They can't do this without Him, and there is no substitute for Him. Israel cannot journey without God's presence and there's no replacement or substitute for God's presence. They can't be like, well, you know what? We don't have God with us, but guess what? We'll just have a bunch of chariots with us. We'll take a bunch of swords and spears, and that'll protect us on the way. No, there's no, there's no substitute for God's presence. And this is Moses' concern. He knows the necessity of God's presence, and there's no option for God not to go with them. The journey would be in vain without him. And so Moses, just in verses 12 through 16, brings up this point. This is his concern. And he brings it up and intercedes on Israel's behalf to God. And he does it so by saying, look, I know I have found favor in your eyes. You've told me I found favor in your eyes. If you want to go and circle in your Bible just in these verses 12 through 23, go and circle all the times that favor or maybe grace in your Bible comes up. Because it's, a, it's numerous times. that I know I found favor in your eyes. I know I found favor in your eyes. And so Moses is bringing up his special intimate relationship with God as he intercedes on Israel's behalf. And so Moses petitions God, and in verse 14, Yahweh answers Moses' petition. He answers it. And he assures Moses that I'm going to be with, with you, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Right? And Moses understands, and he says to God here, he says, there's no point for us to go without you. There is no point for us to go without you. Right? He says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. That's verse 15. There's no point for us to go without you. Because it's your very presence that makes us different and distinct from all other people. That's verse 16. Is, is it not you're going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of this earth? That's what makes us look different from every other nation, from the Canaanites to the Jebusites to the Amorites, whoever it may be. It's you going with us and being with us. The gods of all the other nations, they, don't, they aren't present with their people. But you are. We are your people and you are our God. And so we want you to go with us so that you will continue to show yourself Declare your glory and make us look distinct from every other people. Israel understands that they need God's presence and guidance, sustenance, and protection in their journey. They can't do it apart from Him. And church, I would just say this. We need to learn a lesson here from what Moses is interceding. We need God's presence, the Holy Spirit, in the Christian life. There's no amount of effort. There's no amount of work. There's no amount of pull yourself up by your bootstraps that 
you can do apart from being dependent upon the Spirit for all things. I know I may sound like a charismatic preacher right here talking about the Spirit so much, but we need God's presence, the Holy Spirit, to indwell us and to enable us for everything. That's how dependent we are on the Spirit. We are dependent upon Him for all things. Zechariah 4, 6 says this, Then He said to me, This is the word of the Lord is rubble, not by might, nor by power, but my, by my Spirit, says the Lord. There's no amount of internal fortitude that you can get, that you can muster up to get through the daily Christian life. There's no amount of that. You have to be completely every single day on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and twice on Saturday and Sunday. You have to be dependent upon the Spirit for all things. Are you depending on the Spirit right now? Resting in Him? We need God's Spirit to direct us in all these things. Because if we don't, we will constantly continue to live in the flesh and the world. Romans 8 9 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. This is what distinguishes us, church the Spirit indwelling in us, empowering us, and enabling us to follow Him. It distinguishes us from the world because the world and the flesh have their minds set on the world and the flesh, as Romans 8 says. And the mind that is set on the flesh is death, but the, lo- the mind that is set on the Spirit is life and peace. Look, church, if we don't have the Spirit of God dwelling in us, if we don't depend upon the Spirit, we will continue to give ourselves over to the flesh, over to the prince of the power of the air. And let me just say this, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For the mind that is set on the flesh cannot please God. That's Romans 8. And so we have to be depending upon the Spirit, basically to say what Moses says, God, if your Spirit is not at work in this, there's no reason that we can even try to do this on our own. Are we depending upon the Spirit? And this is Moses' hope that God's Spirit would be with him and God reassures them. But this is not Moses' last request. Moses makes one more request in verses 17 through 23, and that is to see God's glory. To see his glory. Uh, I, I think I talked about this a few weeks ago about, uh, use this illustration about radiation and nuclear power plant meltdowns and stuff like that. Again, another topic and area that I have no degree or level of intelligence to speak about, but I'm going to try because I watched a documentary on it. Uh, so, different levels of radiation exposure. You know, we, we all experience different levels of radiation. If you're, look, hey, you can talk to me after this if you're a nuclear radiation specialist or something like that. And, you know, just call me out then. Don't call me out here. Um, you know, we all experience different levels of radiation. You know, we've all, if you've had an x-ray, to my knowledge, you've experienced some radiation of some form uh, and things like that. And so there's different levels, you know, the radiation that you receive from like an x-ray or something like that is not the same radiation if you were in a nuclear power plant and it melted down, you know, while you were standing there. That's a different level of radiation and exposure, right? And so different levels of exposure can be helpful to you, 
help you, like an x-ray, um, and it'd be okay for you. Be, you can tolerate it. And then there's levels of exposure that you can't tolerate it that would actually kill you in a moment if you were exposed to too much of it, right? And this is somewhat of what Moses is asking of God right here. Show me your glory. Give me the full picture of who you are. And like radiation, what Moses may be asking for, if he were to get it, if God were to give it to him, it would kill him in a moment. That's, that's it. This is Moses' last request in verse 18. He says, show me your glory, God. And God has shown his glory thus far in Exodus. He has displayed himself, right? We saw he showed his glory at the Red Sea and destroying Israel's enemies, the Egyptians. God has shown himself glorious and shown his glory at the Mount Sinai, the thunders and the lightning and the smoke. He's shown his glory multiple times. And so Moses is asking for a fuller glimpse into the fullness of who God is and his attributes. And what God says is this. He says, I'm going to make my goodness pass before you, and I'm going to proclaim my name. We'll get into this a little bit next week in Exodus 34. So I'm going to show you a little bit of who I am. I'm going to show you my goodness and put that on display so you can get a taste of that. And that this act of God that he's going to show Moses a level of his glory is not something that basically is because Moses demanded it, right? That Moses is holding God at gunpoint and saying, you better show me now. You better do what I say, right? It's not it at all. This is God's own prerogative to show his glory. This is why he says in verse 19, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I show mercy, right? God is under no obligation. He's under no pressure. He's under no compulsion to show his glory to Moses or to any of us. He's under no obligation to be gracious or merciful or compassionate to any of us, but he does. He does. Paul actually quotes Exodus 33:19 and Romans chapter 9 verse 15 that that famous chapter on God's sovereign election of his people. He quotes Exodus 33:19 says, "I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will show grace to whom I show grace." It's my prerogative to do so. I don't owe you a thing. This is not Moses saying, hey, I'm ready to cash in. You owe me, God. Show me something. God doesn't owe Moses a thing. And look, church, for any act of God's kindness to you or to me, it's not because God is obligated. It's not because God is under compulsion or pressure or we've built up some credit that he's got a ca- you know, we've got to cash in on. God is gracious and merciful to us solely because that is who He is, not because of anything that we've done. Unmerited. And so, I want to say to us, church, there's a danger that we can get into this relationship with God where we say, God owes me this. Look how good I've been. Look how obedient I've been. Look at what I've done. Look at all the things that I've accomplished. Look at what I didn't do, what I could have done, but I didn't do, God. So you owe me. You owe me, God. Church, God doesn't owe us a thing. God doesn't owe us a thing. And what we deserve is God's justice and righteousness. 
and wrath. And God is gracious and compassionate to give us not what we deserve. That's by His own prerogative. So, Moses seeing God's glory, even a glimmer of it, it's not because Moses has done anything on his own, but because of God's own compassion and grace and mercy. And so, Moses is going to experience a level of of God's revelation of his nature, but he's not going to be able to see God's face. That'd be too much. That would cause him, that would cause his death. This is what Manoah said in Judges chapter 13 when he says, We're certainly going to die. This is after seeing an angel. We're certainly going to die because we have seen God. People understood to see God, to see his face, that, that's instantly we're going to die. Right? And so God makes it really clear you're not going to see my face or it would totally consume you but I'm going to show you a glimmer, a glimpse of my glory. And so he makes it possible for Moses to experience his glory. God will have to protect Moses by limiting his exposure. He will have to be put in the cleft of a rock. He will cover him with his hand. He will see his back and not his face to see his glory. Man, maybe you're here this morning and you're screaming out, God, show me your glory. You're wanting that experience that Moses had. Show me your glory. That's what I just want to see. I want to see your glory, God, this morning. Renew my life. Renew my life because I just want to see you in all, in all of who you are. I want to see your face. Church, like Moses, because he was a sinner, we can't see God in all his glory lest we die. But we have seen God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, whom Himself is God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed Him. 2 Corinthians 4.6, for God said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.3 The Son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all, with unfailed face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. From this comes from the Lord, who is Spirit. John 1.14 And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You want to see God's glory? Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Because God has demonstrated His glory in His Son, Jesus Christ. This morning, you want to see God's glory? I would say this, understand the story of the Bible, what we heard this morning. God is a holy God, and He is the ruler of all things, and He gets to tell us how to live. But we did not obey Him. We sinned, humans, every single human sin, and have fallen short of the glory of God. And because we have fallen short of the glory of God, the wages of sin for all our falling short is death and hell. But that's not the end of it. God, being a holy, righteous God, is also a gracious and compassionate God who sent Jesus Christ, the glory of God, who is the radiance of His glory. 
and that this Jesus Christ lived the perfect life. He died the death on the cross in our place, bearing our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, and that he was put in a tomb and raised from the dead gloriously and now sits on a throne in heaven, reigning over all things until the day that he will return and judge the living and the dead. And if this day, right now, you don't want to stand before God as a foe, you want to see God in all his wonderful goodness and glory, repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as the God, Savior, and King who has come to die for your sins. And you will behold God, unveiled face, and you will be transformed, as 1 John says. That is the good news. You want to see God's glory? Look to Christ. Be reconciled to Him and be transformed by Him. Let's pray. God, we love You and we thank You for this day and we just declare we, we have Christ. The glory of God has come to us. So that is where we have to look. I pray this morning for any in here who has realized that their sin has distanced them from God, that they find that they can have intimacy with God through Christ Jesus. They don't have to remain at a distance as a foe, but can be called a friend. I pray, Lord, God, now those of us who have our faces unveiled and are being transformed from one glory to another, that we would see our mission now is to go and declare the good news of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus to all the world, starting with our neighbors and to all the nations, God. We love you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.